Welcome to the America's 360 podcast. Get the inside scoop and the outside perspective on the latest developments from Canada, Latin America, and everywhere in between. America's 360 is a production of the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. Hi, I'm John Molesky, and this is America's 360. The program is brought to you by the world's number one think tank for regional studies and America's 360 is a collaboration among the Wilson Center's Argentina Project, Brazil Institute, Canada Institute, Latin American Program, and Mexico Institute. Well, it was almost seamless, but somewhere along the way, the world transitioned from the information age to the disinformation age. Propaganda and even outright lying are certainly not new, but the tools of the information age have made the spreading of disinformation easier than ever dreamt of before. And they've had significant implications for media, governance, elections, and national security across the globe. From so-called fake news to covert meddling in elections, governments and civil society are playing catch up when it comes to preventing the harm that's being done to democracies and efforts to stop the flow of bad information may also do unintentional or even intentional damage to freedom of expression. It's a lot to sort through. As a starting point for our discussion, Canada Institute Director Christopher Sands has a special guest who can help us navigate these muddy waters. Over to you, Chris. Thank you, John. And we're here with Nina Jankowitz, who is a expert on information and disinformation uh, here at the Woodrow Wilson Center. And uh, Nina, I know you're not a, a Western Hemisphere specialist, uh, but America's 360 is glad to have you. I wonder, with many Americans who started to hear hearing about information and disinformation or fake news, there's always been you know a sense after the 2016 election that we don't know what we can count on. Um, from your point of view, having studied this internationally, what makes purposeful disinformation so pernicious as opposed to just bad information that's out there? I think there are two things that are generally misunderstood about how disinformation operates. The first one is that disinformation runs on emotion. We often you know, describe it as fake news, but couldn't be further from the truth. There is always a kernel of visceral truth at the center of disinformation, the, the most successful disinformation narratives. They're not just Photoshopped images or made up stories. They, they matter to people. That's why we've seen so much disinformation around the coronavirus pandemic. So that's number one. Number two, um, what makes disinformation so pernicious in the internet era is the fact that the social media platforms are structured to ensure that the bad information, this malign information, meets the most vulnerable audience possible. And that's done not only through advertising, but through the incentive um, for engagement structures that exist on these platforms. So recently, I've been looking a lot into Facebook groups. Facebook has started prioritizing groups as their primary means of social interaction on the platform, prioritizing them for friends and family, uh, and to make people feel a little bit more comfortable after all of this kind of all of the PR scandals they've been dealing with over the past few years, but those are also attack surfaces for any malign actor, whether foreign or domestic, because people are segmented around interests. So yes, you might have a group of local soccer moms, but you also have people who are into conspiracy theories or anti-vaccination theories. And all you have to do is drop a link in there and that stuff will spread like wildfire. So it's the not only the content, these emotional messages, but then the structure that allows these messages to be targeted precisely and spread faster and farther than they might have otherwise. 
Well, and this is certainly happening in many of the countries in the Western Hemisphere, including Canada. I wonder, though, is there anything you've seen in your study on this issue that uh, is an effective counter strategy? Anything you can do to counter disinformation, either as a government or maybe as a social media platform owner or even as a citizen? How, how can we respond to this more effectively and, and hopefully keep some integrity to our politics? Well, I like to describe the strategy that both governments and platforms have had so far as whack-a-troll, just like the carnival game of whack-a-mole. We try to find these fake accounts and take them off off of the platforms. Um, That is really futile because they just keep popping up. The return on investment is too great for bad actors to not keep creating them. Um, And what we really need to focus on, yes, we should hold bad actors to account, the nation states that are doing this stuff. Of course, we need to have penalties for for people who are sharing this sort of thing. I mean, the the bad actors, not individual citizens who are just misinformed. Um, If, you know, they're going, running afoul of the terms of service, perhaps there needs to be a warning there. But uh, we need to look at the more domestic endemic issues that allow disinformation to flourish. Um, and then, you know, put the sort of uh, oomph behind that that the, only the government can provide. So think about things like media literacy. Uh, think about, you know, solving uh, the civics crisis that we have, certainly here in the United States. A lot of disinformation is about you know, the fact that people don't know how our elections process works on uh, on multiple levels. So those are two important things. On the platform levels, I think we need a lot more transparency into why we are receiving the information that we're receiving and who's sending it to us, why we're being targeted. Right now, the platforms have a lot of incentive to hide that um, because it makes them money, quite simply. Um, and then on an individual level, you know, as elections approach here in the United States, but of course, you know, democracy is a daily thing. Elections are only an inflection point. They're not the end point. So this is important for everyone everywhere. I think it, we really just need to return, and perhaps this is a little cliche, but return to humanity in these discussions. Rather, if you see something that you think is false online, rather than shouting at someone in a comment section, take it offline, have a conversation with them in a direct message, call them up. People are going to be a lot uh, more receptive to that sort of criticism when you're not doing it in the public. And rather than saying, here's the Snopes link for why this is wrong, you might say, tell me about why this this article or this meme is appealing to you and try to kind of get into a discussion about that. That is way more likely to change behavior than just a fact check. That's uh, it's still a tall order, um, but it gives us a lot to think about. And and putting responsibility on people, all of us having a share in democracy, I think is a great takeaway from this. Thank you so much, Nina Jankowitz, for having the chance to join us on America's 360 this week. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much, Chris. Thank you, Chris, and thank you, Nina. Before we let you go, Nina, I also wanted to take this opportunity to plug your excellent new book, How to Lose the Information War, Russia, Fake News, and the Future of Conflict, available right now from fine booksellers everywhere. I know you've been out there a lot on the book, Nina. Thank you for joining us here today as well. Thanks for having me. And we will be right back as our roundtable continues this discussion of disinformation and the suppression of free expression that might go along with that, or at least concerns about that across the Americas. Uh, We'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to America's 360. Hello and welcome back to America's 360. It's time for our roundtable segment. So let's meet our participants. You've already heard from Chris Sands, director of the Canada Institute. Hello, Chris. Thanks, John. Hi. Also with us, Brazil Institute director Ricardo Zuniga. Hey, John. 
Latin American program director, Cindy Arnson. Hey, John. Duncan Wood is director of the Center's Mexico Institute. Hi, Duncan. Hey, John. And the director of the Argentina Project is Benjamin Gadad. Hi, Benjamin. Welcome back. Thanks, John. Uh, Ricardo, if we could, let's begin with you. There's so many ways to slice and dice this topic, but uh, since it's uh, under 50 days to the presidential election in the U.S., which is just bursting with concerns about disinformation, let's look back on Brazil's most recent presidential election and tell us what kind of story that provides, that provides instruction on this topic. Well, John, clearly it is something that's really important. A lot of the phenomena that Nina was uh, just discussing Unfortunately, we're seeing a lot of innovation in that area in the Americas, and in the case of the 2018 presidential election, it was the use of WhatsApp uh, as a vehicle for spreading uh, disinformation that really proved uh, very divisive in that election and in that society, and clearly was instrumental in picking up, as Nina said, nuggets of truth and turning them into conspiracies and broad conspiracy theories associated with one campaign or, or the other. But that was just the beginning. That was sort of the opening salvo in a in a competition of disinformation campaigns that we're starting to see in other parts of the region as well. Benjamin Gaddafi. The, the phenomenon of, of presidential candidates benefiting from misinformation is really problematic just for that very reason, that in the case they benefit from it, it's, it's really asking a lot of these candidates to take steps to minimize the spread of that information. Uh, Cindy and I held a workshop in Buenos Aires before Argentina's election last year to see if we could get campaigns to sign on and do something about misinformation when you know it runs counter to their electoral interests. Because I think right now we're relying a lot on Chequeado in Argentina and other fact checkers to do this kind of work. And they just simply don't have the you know audience that the campaigns themselves have. So you know, I think, Ricardo, the Brazil example is really compelling. Cindy Arnson. Um, there's another example. I mean, in Colombia, um, when there was a plebiscite, a vote on the, the peace accords that had been negotiated between the government and the FARC guerrillas, um, there were lots of reasons that that plebiscite lost. Um, but one of them was the circulation over and over on, on social media that this had contained some kind of gender ideology, which was seen by conservative um, evangelical groups as an attack on the um, structure of the family and, and the promotion of the disintegration of the family. So there are ways, as Nina was saying, that the platforms of social media are set up for engagement that just magnifies and, and multiplies the rapid circulation of, of things that are not true. But I think we, we also need to talk about some of the other threats to freedom of expression in the Americas. It's certainly um, not limited to the circulation of disinformation, the murders of journalists, the arrests and torture of journalists, um, things like denying newspapers, a case in Nicaragua of denying newspapers the ability to import newsprint. Um, in Honduras, nominally a democratic country, um, you know, seven journalists were murdered last year and two family members of journalists murdered last year. Venezuela has done away with the opposition media um, by revoking licenses and, and just, you know, continually cracking down on the, the free flow of information. So, you know, there's, there's many ways that um, authoritarian governments or authoritarian leaning governments can restrict um, the kind of information that's available to the citizens. I think that's absolutely right. And in fact, there was a case, Cindy, that drew a lot of attention in Washington over the last week, which was uh, media reports uh, that indicated that the government of El Salvador might have been retaliating against 
this independent outlet, El Faro, in El, based in El Salvador, uh, which has a very strong reputation uh, for its journalism, and conducted a story, carried out, reported a story on alleged contacts between the government of uh, Nayib Bukele and gangs. And in El Salvador, of course, that's a third rail issue, and Bukele had campaigned on uh, combating against the gangs. So any report on contacts with those gangs would certainly be uncomfortable, to say the least. Um, there was even a, a part of El Faro's report that alleged potential cooperation ahead of 2021 municipal elections in El Salvador. So obviously this was very sensitive. And as it happened, the government was pursuing, began pursuing a uh, tax evasion case against El Faro, which is widely believed in among some circles in Washington to be a retaliation against El Faro. Uh, that was only one of 60 cases of actions against journalists that were cited by the El Salvador Journalists Association uh, since Bukele uh, came into office. And here is a leader who enjoys very broad public support and who has used a lot of the tools that Nina described to vilify opponents and to vilify critics. So while uh, actions against the press are not new in the Americas, what we are seeing is a new generation and a new set of tools being used against them that should be worrisome for all of us. And in fact, the uh, Acting Assistant Secretary for Western Hemisphere Affairs, Mike Kozak, tweeted out uh, reinforcing uh, the U.S. support for freedom of expression and freedom of the press. So from what, I, what I'm seeing in the, in the hemisphere in recent years is that we're um, really experiencing attacks from multiple sides. Um, there, is, there are disinformation uh, efforts and campaigns coming in from outside of the region. Um, sometimes they actually originate in the region. They are then parlayed out through to Europe and then back into the region. We've seen this recently with some Venezuelan efforts to, uh, to destabilize other governments in, uh, uh, in, the, in the Americas, um, going through, sometimes going through some, uh, some websites uh, and servers rather in, uh, in Spain. Um, we have seen obviously attempts by Russian actors to try to influence elections. And I think the most pernicious kind that I'm seeing is really from the governments themselves. Um, you know, when you see governments coming in and immediately discrediting uh, news and media outlets. And, and we're seeing this very clearly in Mexico right now. We have a president there, Andres Manuel López Obrador, who is, of course, a master communicator. And he recognizes the importance of getting the high ground in any uh, communications battle. That's why he has his morning press conference, the famous Mañanera, at 7 a.m. every morning. And he uses that press conference to discredit not just his political opponents, but anybody who might criticize him. And that means, of course, some of the more respectable media outlets in the country, newspaper and TV journalists, of course. Um, and he basically claims that this is a, a right-wing, neoliberal, moneyed campaign to undermine his government. At the same time, he uses his manianera to, uh, to disseminate information, which whilst not necessarily wrong, although it's not always accurate, um, certainly is, uh, is, an, is a, a, a thinly veiled attempt to try to distract attention from what's really going on in the country. Chris I hear that, and, I, and yet I also feel that one of the challenges with this, this problem that we're facing internationally is just as it divides society, it also makes it harder for governments to work together. 
uh, last year, actually a little bit earlier this year, but last year Canada signed on to a um, a major initiative co-chairing with France in an attempt to create a international system of third-party verification that would try to shore up certain sources of news and protect democracy. Um, and this was particularly aimed at Russia at the time. And Canada has been involved in this effort now for, for several months, but it's really hard to to get once once you've discredited governments as a source of information and governments aren't trusting each other, it's very hard for governments to work together to try to clean up the uh, the misinformation that's out there. I think it goes to what Duncan said: the governments are both the source of the problem and perhaps, uh, as Nina said, the place we need to go to get the problem fixed. And uh, it's a very difficult situation to reconcile. No, we, we've painted a, quite a dark picture here, when you, when, starting with Benjamin's initial observation that it's hard to tell politicians to essentially commit political suicide when they're benefiting from disinformation. And then we have the press as a culprit as well. At least in the United States, you look at the so-called Fox effect, where an entire network has been responsible for spreading things like Pizzagate, and it, they are part and parcel, so-called mainstream media. So where do we look to for solutions? And then that other side of the coin that Cindy addressed Sometimes the solutions create their own poison pill when you're suppressing free expression. Cindy, go ahead. I think part of the issue also has to do uh, not just with politicians or even with civil society monitors, but with the responsibility of the social media companies themselves. We're certainly seeing a lot of that now in the United States before this upcoming presidential election when there are renewed reports by Microsoft and others that um, that Russia and China and Iran are trying to interfere and spread, you know, fake news on social media platforms. And it's striking to me how the, the tide has really turned, because in the past, social media companies viewed the Internet in a very kind of libertarian way, that it was simply a platform for people to express their views, and they didn't have responsibility for the kinds of views that were being expressed there. And, and I think there's now greater effort, you know, on the part of Twitter, to a much lesser extent on the part of Facebook, to try to clean up their own act and, and take down some of these sites that are spreading, but clearly much more needs to be done. I think the effort to address the misinformation and to hold responsible these platforms, it's all important. Media literacy, as Nina mentioned in the interview, is vital. I think what we need to do, though, at this point, maybe more urgently in Latin America, at least, is to preserve the sources of legitimate good information. And I think, you know, as we've talked about, those are really under threat right now um, with presidents taking advantage of the pandemic to limit public information and to repress their what they see as their opponents in the media. So I think most urgently, we need to defend and protect sources of decent information as we also look at the longer-term threats from misinformation. Ben, I think that that's incredibly uh, important because we do need to break these problems down into manageable sets of actions. And it's very clear, as Duncan mentioned, as Cindy mentioned, as everyone here has mentioned, that there is, because there are deliberate efforts to control and manage that information, one of the areas to focus on is what can be done uh, in the short term and in the immediate term to protect accurate sources of information that are delivering an important public good in the form of reliable information. Uh, and I think one area of special concern uh, and that, that needs to be looked at is government use of these so-called troll centers uh, as ways to drown out uh, as uh, in, in Mexico, it's the Mañanera, but in other countries, um, there is a there is a group of semi-organized um, bloggers often. And this has come up in Brazil, it's come up in El Salvador, it's come up throughout Central America. And this is targeting not only legitimate sources of information, but citizens themselves. 
And so there are targets that can be uh, looked at uh, for support and to be countered. You know, one of the most sinister side effects of this is, of course, the facts matter less and less. And that's particularly important when you work at a think tank like the Wilson Center. You want to have your analysis, which we, we, we do believe is based in facts. We want to have that taken into consideration. And so I think that now is, it, it, it's doubly important to uh, strengthen support for civil society organizations throughout the Americas. And, of course, for some of the, uh, the research centers, the think tanks, et cetera, that do the best kind of analysis down there. Um, in Latin America and, and up through, uh, through North America to really focus on, on who is doing the right kind of work. Cindy Artson. Media companies long before fake news and disinformation was such a big problem and, you know, direct attacks on the media um, by these kind of troll groups that, that Duncan was just referring to. I mean, there were also major, major issues of financing. Um, there are media companies that are reliant on a, a small number of financial backers. Um, as with every media source, they're relying on advertisers for basic sources of revenue. Um, so it's not just a, a question of supporting good journalism and um, important journalists in the region and, and their ability to do their work, but also making sure that they have the uh, financial support, you know, to do that and have multiple sources so that they're not reliant on, you know, one particular powerful economic interest. You know, Nina's ultimate solution, as we've referenced, is media literacy and that we all need to become part of the solution. That's a long-term scenario. In the short term, uh, what are your thoughts? Does this get worse before it gets better? Sadly, yes. Uh, unfortunately, the, what's, what we found is that those who aim to achieve some particular political outcome or who aim to disrupt democracy in general realize this is a vehicle that gets right at people's psyche, gets right at their greatest fears, and is the equivalent of having not just shouting fire in a crowded theater, but being able to multiply that shout across into every household. And they, they pick up on genuine fears, genuine concerns, genuine prejudices, and amplify them so massively that, that it is uh, difficult for, uh, for us to maintain the norms that have uh, helped maintain social peace in, in many countries around the region for so long. Well, uh, Ricardo, thank you for that, that eloquent uh, conclusion for our discussion. I have breaking news. We're out of time. I wish it were fake news, but we're actually out of time. You know, this is not an easy discussion, and, and clearly there is no uh, silver bullet, but I think there is culpability all around. Thank you for your ideas, ideas today. We can look forward to seeing all of you back for another edition of America's 360. This is a place you could come for solid information. That's something we guarantee there'll be no disinformation here. And we'd also love to hear from you. Please send us your comments, questions, and suggestions via email. And you can do that with the address Americas360 at WilsonCenter.org. Until then, for all of us at the Wilson Center and Americas360, I'm John Molesky. Thanks for joining us. You have been listening to Americas 360, a podcast about the innumerable ties among the nations of the Western Hemisphere. Americas 360 is produced and edited by Oscar Cruz, Angela Robertson, and Mariana Sanchez Ramirez. You can subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. To learn more about our programs, please visit wilsoncenter.org. And please join us again next time for another episode of Americas 360.